Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of The Braden Anderson Show, where your host, Braden Anderson, takes you on a journey of growth and reflection as he shares stories and has candid conversations featuring some of the world's most extraordinary human beings. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Welcome to the Braden Anderson Show. Today we have a very, very special guest. We got Brother Ali in the house. He, if you don't know of him, is a is a hip hop artist known for his socially conscious and positive introspective lyrics. He has released several critically acclaimed albums, including Shadows on the Sun, Undisputed Truth, Morning in America, and Dreaming in Color. In addition to music, Brother Ali is also known for his activism humanitarian work, including uh, his efforts to promote racial justice and, and equality. Through his career, Brother Ali has received numerous accolades and awards for his music and activism. Some of those notable accomplishments and awards include Underground uh, Music Award for Best Hip Hop Album uh, for Shadows of, on the Sun, the Minnesota Music Award for Hip Hop Artist of the Year, the Independent Music Award for B- Best Hip Hop Rap album for Morning in America and Dreaming in Color, the BET Hip Hop Award for Best Hip Hop Video, Only Life I Know, the Minnesota Music Award for Hip Hop Artist of the Year, and the Paz and Drop Critics Poll for Album of the Year in 2020 for All the Beauty in This Whole Life. This man is a legend, truly uh, a top three for me in terms of my le- list of the greatest ever. and. Just an incredible honor to have you on the show, Brother Ali. Thanks. Who are your other two? Like, if I'm top three, who are the other two? I'm so happy that you asked me that. So for me, it's it's Nas, Jay Z, Brother Ali. That's 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 how it is for me. That's amazing. I was. It's always funny when people are like, "You're one of my favorites." I'm like, "Who are your other favorites?" And they're like, "Man." The dude from Informer, it's always like it's always like a bunch of white people. It's like the guy from Informer, Vanilla Ice, Bubba Sparks. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, no, that's you. So, it, so I I hope that you would ask me that because I think it it reveals a lot of like where that you know where that compliment comes from, right? Like those top lists. It's if if you mess with the cats who are also on the list, or those those cats had any you know inspiration or or you know, impact on you as an as a person or an artist, it's always like, oh man, like, okay, you know, I get where you're coming from there. But for me, it's it's all it's interesting to even read out some of those like underground hip hop artists of the year, underground this, underground that. Yeah, I, I never even knew about any of those awards, including the BET one. Like if I got a BET award, I should have known that. I would have that would have <laughs> made me really happy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm sure it happened, but I just didn't even know I didn't even know about it. I mean, when you're when you're grinding and, and focusing on the craft, it, sometimes that stuff it, it falls through the cracks. But it's it's just interesting that concept of what under like what is underground, right? And and why why are certain artists underground? You know, when I think of your music, the impact it had on me and and where I grew up. Just so you know, I grew up in in Calgary, Alberta, uh, Western Canada. End up living all over the U.S. through following that bounce in basketball wherever it went. But you have a massive, massive 
audience and 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 collective of super fans in Alberta, which is, you know, I'm not sure if you know that, um, but you growing up, like, you, it's not a, it, it's not a surprise, right, for for the people where I grew up, that my list is Nas, Jay Z, Brother Ali, right, because you were that big of a deal, um, and so to you, you're not underground. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think underground is really about like, have you have you been embraced by the mainstream platforms? And I've definitely been I've definitely been flirted with by all those platforms. So like I was on Jimmy Kimmel with the roots and I was on I know not that's not Jimmy Kimmel. I was on um who's the guy that hosts the roots? Is it uh uh um, anyway, I was on that one. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon? Show like that. Fallon? Jimmy Fallon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was on Fallon with the Roots. Um, I was on Conan O'Brien. I did like a number of those type of thing, Carson Daly and all that stuff. And I've, you know, I've, I was on the Billboard charts a few times with a few of the albums and stuff like that. But I was never really embraced by those mainstream platforms, even though there are artists that were and that have been. So there are people that are, that you see on those types of uh, platforms all the time. But if I do a show in Alberta and they do a show in Alberta, I'm, I might get three times as many people. And there are other underground artists that are even bigger than me, like Tech 9 and Atmosphere. You know what I mean? They will outsell any of these artists, especially over the course of a, of a career. So, you know, Nas and Jay-Z certainly are doing much better. But for being underground, I, I really just feel like it means that a person has made it in spite of not being embraced by those platforms. And oftentimes it's because people connect on such a heart level that it it actually is the case that, you know, artists like me and my friends, so whether we're talking about Killer Mike or Aesop Rock or whoever, that somebody's top five list could be, you know, a few people that have an enormous platform and then somebody that might not have, you know, a big mainstream kind of outlet uh, but still be somebody's favorite and still be able to live. In a lot of cases, I feel like I'm more free. I feel like I'm more happy. I feel like I'm less caged in, in the way that I'm able to live my life. I'm really, I feel very grateful. I feel like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. I, I've always found the concept fascinating that certain artists and it, and the mainstream and like who's making those kinds of decisions, right? Like who's making it like, I think about your, your, um, um, your song sensitive, right? Um, you know, keep in mind, I'm an artist and I'm sensitive about my shit. Right. And you talked about the, that situation where somebody was interviewing you from, from one of the major magazines. Um, and they were like, man, I love you, brother Ali and, and whatever. And showing all that love. It was like, where what you know, put, put me in the magazine. Where's the love in the in the magazine? Where where is it? You know, why why aren't you putting me up with everybody else? And it's 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 just kind of an interesting. Yeah, they're not yeah. Necessarily, they're not gonna you know put me on the cover. You know, if they've got whatever, um, you know, if Kendrick Lamar's on the cover, I'm not going to be on the cover, and I understand that. But my thing is like when they're having conversations about hip hop culture and artistry and they talk about like you know these are the top 10 stories hip-hop storytelling lyrical like storytelling songs of all time 
or just times when I'm like, I could be in that conversation or times where they say like, you know, these are some of the best socially conscious hip hop songs of all time. And like no mention of me or Immortal Technique or Atmosphere or Merce or any of the people that I know. Like, I know that we've told stories that can rival some of the artists that are on that list. And so I just think like, I always feel like these people don't care about me. And there may be a little bit of a feeling I have about that where I wish that wasn't true, but it's not how I live. But when I'm in those spaces, I feel like they don't necessarily care about me. So then to go there, and one of the people in the office has a tattoo of one of my lyrics on their arm, and they're writing for the magazine. And it's like, you know who I am. I'm I'm here, and they're, they're doing this one piece because I had a new album out that year. But it's a very strange thing. And I I genuinely asked them that question. And I, they were at least kind enough to sit and talk to me and to try to figure out why. And one of the things they told me is like, we didn't think you wanted to be uh, talked about. We didn't think you wanted to be mentioned. It's very strange. One time, um, the congressman from the state of Minnesota, first Muslim congressman in the United States, Keith Ellison's an old, like dear friend of mine. And then the comedian talk show host, Hassan Minhaj, is also a longtime dear friend of mine. Oh, he's awesome. They were trying to talk. Yeah, during the George Floyd thing, they were trying to have a conversation and they were having a tough time getting in touch with each other. So they both reached out to me. I put them in touch. And Hassan says at the beginning of the interview, like, man, I had to put in the brother Ali call. Like that's like in the Muslim community. It's like that's a whole other role that I play. And so I just I called Hassan and I was like, hey, thank you for messaging, messaging, mentioning me because I've made those connections a lot and people never mention me. And he's like, yo, you know, it's funny. It's like I almost asked the editors to take that out because I didn't think you'd want to be mentioned. Interesting. Like, yeah, you didn't think I'd want credit for something I'd help do? Like, why not? But there's, I think because of the fact that we haven't been on those platforms, people assume that we don't want to be. And that's not the case at all. It's just that we're going to do what independent people are going to do what we're here to do, whatever our calling is, whether those platforms are part of it or not. Um, but I think it's there's a strange thing where people think that we don't want that exposure or something. Do you, do you think that because your messages and in, in your songs are always they have this uplifting positivity? And before the show, I mentioned that several of your songs were literally anthems for me, right? Like growing up in poverty, dealing with homelessness, trying to make it in a new country by myself, right? Like it was a crazy, crazy journey for me. And I always felt like I could find peace. I could find somebody in your songs and, and in your music. I just, I felt like you got it. Like, I felt like you understood me, the the things that you talked about, right? Like I'm, I want to mention some of my favorite songs because um, everybody's got different favorite brother Ali songs, but I want to mention my, I, I came up with 12. I, I wanted to have a top 10, but I was like, nah, like I, I have 12 and that it is what it is. Um, so going through it, new new joint, had to throw it in there. Um, Own Light, Dorian, Baby Girl, Room with a View, Star Quality, Breaking Dawn, My Beloved, Chain Link, Sensitive, Shadows on the Sun, and Walking Away. Those are my... That's a good, good list, man. 
And there's a couple songs in there. I mean, first of all, anytime somebody has making, been making music for 20 years and you put one of the new songs in there, automatically the artist is going to want to be your friend. Because most of the time people are like, it doesn't matter how good your new music is. People are like, yeah, but it'll never be like it was when we were all 23. And like, yeah, of course it won't. But that doesn't mean I don't have something to say. You know what I mean? No, because it's different. You go through different stages in life, right? Like life changes and you're being true to your artistry. And so when you're talking about things, it comes from a genuine place, right? You're talking about what you're thinking about right now. Yeah. but And I'm saying, yeah. So like, I mean, Dorian is a great example of that. Like that literally is me living. So we had just, I had, I had just come from being homeless. I was living with my first wife in North Minneapolis in the hood and this, there's like these two buildings next to each other that were halfway houses. So it was either people getting out of jail, getting out of drug rehab, uh, getting out of women's abuse shelters, uh, like people coming from all these different types of walks of life. So it was like transitional housing. It was two sixplex apartment buildings. So 12 units of just people cycling in and out that are in freaking crisis mode. And so this guy was across the hall, used to beat up his girlfriend and we could hear it. And so one of the times I knocked on the door because I'm like, man, I'm going to have a conversation with this guy. I'm just going to talk to him. Right. And it escalated. And he, you know, it, that's exactly what happened in the story. We got in a fight and I ended up like fighting this guy in my hallway, like in hoop shorts. I'm like in my pajamas. You know what I'm saying? And then the police came. I don't know who called the police. I don't know if it was like his lady or one of the neighbors or if they called him because he was beating up her or because I was beating up him or whatever. But when the police came, his lady came out and was like, tell him to get off my man. And I'm like, I'm trying to get him to get off of you. You know what I mean? And so it's like, that's such a 22 year old situation. Like Everything about that screams early twenties. For real. You know right. Right. Whereas like, well, in my forties, that's just not how I would respond to that thing. I just love the way that you broke him down as a human being, right? As a as a weak person, because just you, and you never know, man. You never know what how your music's gonna touch somebody else, right? Like for me, I related to that, not because I was in an apartment building where I was overhearing somebody beating up their girl, but because my stepdad was abusive towards my mom, right? And like to hear somebody come forward with with that like that emotion and that like, nah, like you're not cool. You're a small person, right? Like that, it was, it's the energy, right? The lyrics are one thing, but the energy that that song produced for me, it made me feel big. Like it, it made me feel like, nah, I'm not gonna let my stepdad do that anymore, right? I'm not gonna let, I, I don't care if, you know, I can't remember how old I was at the time. We could look up, what, what year was it that, that Dorian came out? That came out in 03. And it took a it took a while to spread around. There was no distribution, so you might have heard it in 05 or six. But yeah, yeah. In so I was young. Like I, I remember listening to that and being pretty young. I mean, it sounds like I was probably 13, 14 years old, right? And you know that became like one of those things where it helps you through that emotion, right? And it helps you kind of compartmentalize what's going on and go, no, that's not okay. And, and it's okay for me to be that person who's going to say it's not okay. And it's okay for it to not work. Have the desire. It's like, it's okay to have the desire to address this person, to stand up for this other person. Like, it's okay to have that desire. 
you know that's the i mean that's the way that i feel so much about music is like even if i'm not able to find it, the wherewithal to do to you know if this song is about a hero like maybe i'm not able to be that hero but i at least get some sort of recognition that the inclinations that i'm having are i'm not alone in them yeah you you did the right thing right like so for me understanding the, the reverse of it for me as a person listening i i would get in fist fights with my stepdad he's he, he was big he was a small dude he was six two you know 320 right and i would get in big fist fights with, with my stepdad over how he would treat me and over how he would treat my mom and you know he, it wasn't a fair fight until i got a little bit older but at 12 he would knock me out right like that's what caused me being homeless at first and you could say hey maybe you did the wrong thing you just got knocked out right maybe you should just kind of keep your mouth shut and and handle the situation but sometimes doing the right thing doesn't turn out well right away right sometimes doing the right thing is is hard and sometimes you get knocked out sometimes the, the cops get called and you look like the bad guy but it's still the right thing to do you know because i kept on you know trying to make sure that my mom heard that message and, and knew that i cared and eventually she did escape that situation and the other thing for me is that like i said the f word like that terrible f word that people say about gay people in that song about that guy and in my mind it was like you know in my my 22 year old self i was like this is i'm not talking about gay people i'm saying this oh, dude is yeah. weak that's not and what that word meant no, well, I mean, you know, I that's the way that we used it in the culture yeah. that I came from at that time. And we didn't understand that we were like co-signing a narrative yeah. that made it okay to treat gay people a certain way or to just even think that gay people are weak because it that ultimately is not in and of itself it's not a weakness. Right. But the idea that gay people are weak is like I had never thought through that. So for me what that reminds me is that we talking about doing the right thing. It's like, yes, I was raised. And also I've just always been the kind of person that if somebody is being abused, I'm going to say something because I know what it's like to be abused and nobody says anything. I, I've experienced that even my adult life where it's like something is happening wrong and just no one will speak up or even no one will even say it when they have an opportunity to say it. It's like, okay, so we're just, no one's going to say anything. Yeah, walk us through that. Is do you have any recent examples of of times where you've kind of channeled that 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 inner power to to try to make a difference? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I, I just kind of live like that, you know. Um, I just kind of live like that. Like uh, I was traveling with some young women, like some young Muslim artist women, and. Um, the TSA guys, like, I knew that they only had carry-on bags. Like, they didn't check bags. So that means all their clothes and, you know, private things are in this bag. And so it's a bunch of Muslims coming through the TSA. And the male security guy just starts searching the bag. And so I asked the sister, I was like, are your private things in that bag? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, do you want to be in private? And do you want a woman to search your bag? And she was like, yeah. And that's the law. They're supposed to do that. Like, I've been harassed by them for 15 years. So I said to him, you're not supposed to you're not supposed to search that bag. I need you to close the bag. I need she needs a private room and a woman needs to search her bag. 
And he was like, well, I'm already doing it. And she didn't say anything. I was like, you were supposed to have asked. So right. I was like, step away, close her bag and step away from it now. You know what I mean? And I find myself just like that right. energy again. And I was like, I know you're doing your job. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm on, I'm on 4S status as it is. I'm right. this close from, not, from being on a no-fly list. Right. If I have an incident, I might not be able to travel and practice my craft anymore. Right. But in that moment, it's like I have to do. And the way that I spoke to him, like the the bass of my voice came out, the daddy voice came out. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, close the bag, step away and have a do your job the right way. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, you know what I'm saying? And he did it like he was scared. And right. that's not a good thing. You already know. You probably know it better than me. <laughs> Yeah, man. Like when you scare an authority, it's like I wasn't supposed to scare him, but and so one of the sisters was like, "What would you have done? It, like if he just made that call and you know?" And I'm just like, "Man, I don't know. Allah is God. I don't know. Like I just, right. I'm like that's that's just how I am, you know." Um, do you feel like it? Do you feel like in those moments, it's it's that it's coming from from you or do you think that in certain moments you're something a higher power speaking through you right to to do those things right because you it didn't nothing bad did happen right you were able to 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 defend somebody who who wasn't able to defend themselves in that moment right um do, do you feel like you know it, do you think it's a spiritual aspect to that yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination. And that's the whole point with art. And also, you know, art is a spiritual practice. And all of these things, they're spiritual practices. And the, the, what we try to do in any spiritual practice is allow the best, the best part of ourselves that was designed by the creator to be that without being contained, without being contaminated by our ego and by our pettiness and by our you know, whatever, like we try to have. So like, you know, there's righteous anger. That was righteous anger that this guy was in the wrong. He's violating her privacy. She's not doing anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with being Muslim. There's nothing wrong with flying. There's nothing wrong with carrying on your back. There's nothing wrong with anything she's doing. He's not doing his job right. And, you know, he's putting the onus on her and on us. And, you know, so that's righteous anger. And we don't ever want to kill anger, but we want to have anger to the right degree in the exact right. You know, it, it can become almost like the the sword or the weapon or the, the horse that the person rides. If it's trained, if it's not trained, then it rides you. I had to work on that for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I had to work on that for sure. It's And it's one of those things that like with men when we're in situations where we're trying to like defend ourselves and other people and women from like other men, man, some stuff gets written in there along with the trauma that we're experiencing. And that that's in our body. And like, you know, so yeah, it's a yeah, never-ending process of trying to heal and get, get right so that we can show up the way we're supposed to. For, for sure. For sure. It's, it's the passion, man. It's, it's the, it's, it's that, that energy, right? Um, so I want to talk about greatness and and the fact that it so often comes from pain and hardship, right? And struggle. Can you tell us about your journey to becoming 
the legend that you are today and the challenges that, that you had to overcome to become Brother Ali? Yeah, man. I, I mean, I think that um, I think that what you're saying is really true. Is is deep. One of my best friends in the world is a poet named Amir Suleiman. Um, he's another one of these people that is just. I think he's one of the wonders of the world. I think he's the greatest poet in the world at our time. Like I don't, you know, um, there's not a lot of opportunities for someone in his position to really get their flowers, but. He was just nominated for a Grammy for the second time. Wow. But Amir is writing a, a movie. And it's an amazing concept for the movie. But what he was saying to me is that this character in this movie, I wanted to write somebody that I love and admire beyond words. Like this person is a composite and culmination of all the people in my life that I love the most. And so... He's the most courageous person in the world. He's the most generous person in the world. All these like virtues that he's listing. Mm. And he's like, but how do I convey to the audience that comes to watch this movie how amazing this character is? The only way that I can really do it is that I've got to write, for him to be courageous, for example, I have to write these situations where he's going to be in danger. Like I have to write really terrifying things for in this person's life so that we can witness him be virtuous and be courageous in the moment. So he's like, man, so I'm writing a scary situation. And I realized like, no, they don't get it, that he's even better than what they're seeing here. He's like, I need to make this more terrifying. So he's like, I go something that makes this even more terrifying. Like I just go back and write something earlier. And so then that way, when this shows up, now you see how amazing he is. And he was like, man, this just really made me think about the creator and the fact that, you know, we we experience our lives in these linear forms where like t yesterday happened to me yesterday, then today happens to me today, tomorrow will happen tomorrow, Sunday will be Sunday, so, so on. But the creator sees it all as one story. And so for these, for us to be shown who we are, like we need these things that that reveal that. And I'm saying like, we don't know how generous we are until we have nothing and still figure out, find a way to share, you know? Um, so for me, it, it's mostly just, it's about, um, I, it's a lot of identity stuff. So my parents are white. I was born albino in the Midwest in um, rural Wisconsin. And um, so it's, it's an overwhelmingly white place. Being albino means I don't have pigment in my skin, hair, eyes. I'm also partially blind. And it's something that is extremely rare for white people. It exists in every race. African legally people blind, right? the whole diaspora. Yeah, legally blind, yeah. So like I can't drive, can't do anything that you have to be able to see to do. So um, the thing is that like African people have way more al albinism than anybody else in the world. And so there's this feeling like black, a lot of black people just think that albinos are black. And there's a lot of white people that think the same thing. So there have always been people that have treated me like I was, but I've had police officers pull a gun on me. And then I never know what somebody thinks I am until it's like somebody saying it to me or I read it in an interview later. Brother right Ali's a black albino and so on. So I'm like, yo, I never said that. Um, yeah. Or like a police officer will be like, 
six foot black male, 250 pounds. I'm just like, oh, damn it. He thinks I'm black. I'm about to die. Yeah, I'm like, I feel in my body the difference. Like, I know the difference. Uh, my mother called the police one time. And when, so the cop came through the door of my mother. So the cop is like, I'm in white people's house. And he was like, listen, man, we just got to calm the situation down. I know what it's like when the cop thinks I'm white. And then when the cop thinks I'm black, it's guns and what's your real name? And did you convert to Islam in prison? And Interesting. All, all kind of cussing. And I'm, you know, just like, I feel the danger. It's a totally different experience. So most of what I've dealt with in my life is being in America um, and being this, being kind of like straddled between two worlds of the people that raised me, cared for me, taught me, trained me, loved me, fought me, everything were black. My family was white. A lot of the people that listen to my music are white. The main like speaking, speaking up that I do is to my own audience. Because there are people that like, they don't want to, but they like me for racist reasons or for reasons that maybe not be like, like explicitly racist. Like we're trying to steal black. We want white rappers. We want white people that can do black people stuff as as good as them. But there's this thing in America for 400 years where white people really like to see themselves doing something, doing the few things that they historically don't have immediate access to, which is black cultural art forms. So there are certain white people that just love to see a white person rap or play basketball or, yeah, you know. The obsession with Larry Bird. Yeah, Ron Jeremy. I remember they said Ron Jeremy was like, man, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah, man, that's a white guy with a big yeah. one. You know yeah. what I mean? It, there, there, there's this, and for me having been raised and loved and nurtured by inner city black Muslims and pro-black pan-Africanists. And like, that's the people that have loved me and nurtured me. So my whole life has just been trying to figure all that out. What does all that mean? Wanting to be accepted, not being fully at home anywhere. That's been, that's been the source of most of my stuff. I can, I can relate a lot to that. So, but before I, I want to share a little bit uh, (laughs) with my kind of identity journey but so do you do you identify as black or or white or you just you just you're just brother ali but do you identify as as a particular race or um do you I, I, yeah. yeah i i basically so it just kind of depends on what level we're talking about you know um i don't identify as black because only black people are black that's and that's just the way that is. Like, I'm sorry, Rachel Dolezal. That just only black people. That is a very unique, specific like situation in the world that no other group of people, even other people of color, it's like, man, don't steal black stuff and don't just write yourself into black situations because I know everyone has their struggles. I'm sorry, nobody's experienced what black people have in the new world in the last 500 years. It's very peculiar and unique. Nobody has been stolen and their names changed and their families intentionally broken up for 500 years. It just hasn't happened to anybody else. Maybe in the whole history of the human family. We don't know another time that it's happened like that. So 
I don't identify as black, but also it's like, I'm not giving, like, I have to be honest about who, everything that people like me for. Like people like to hear me rap. They like my takes on things. They like even my, my the spiritual stuff that I do, the activism, the organizing, all of that stuff. I was trained directly by black people. So there's this black Muslim woman that from my community that listens to my podcast. And sometimes it like if I say I'm white on the podcast, she'll hit me up and be like, that's triggering. Stop saying that because it's almost like you're disowning the people that created you. Then the idea of white, though, is like I inside myself don't have any like um, connection with that concept on the inside. But I, I, I come from a family. I'm saying like there are generational traumas and generational experiences. So I come from a family that was positioned in a certain way. You know, so I, I there's all kind of stuff that I inherit that is from the white experience. So I, I kind of look at it, um, you know, whiteness is a mostly a a, a social thing. Um, it's a communal thing. And so anytime there's like a thing that I think a white person should do, I'm down to do that. When I hear like, what are the things that white people should do? Whether they come from me or others, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm always signed up to do that stuff. Right. But inside myself, I can't front like I really identify. Like I love Minister Farrakhan, and when he talks about white people, I don't feel accused of any. I don't feel right. accused. Right. You know what I mean? I feel like he's telling the truth. Like there's nothing. There's nothing about that that's like off-putting to me. Or if I listen to Malcolm X, or if I listen to, even if I go around a new group of black people and they don't trust me right away, it's like, yeah, that's probably wise. You probably, you know what I'm saying? Or if people think like, or even people trying to figure out like, is Brother Ali pretending to be black? That's a good question to ask because there are people that do. Like everybody wants to steal everything from black people, especially culturally. Like, yes, you should be protective. You know what I mean? I have, I take no offense at any of that. So, yeah, so that's, that's really interesting on the identity front, both personally and also just objectively as a philosophical um, concept, right, to, to just break down. Because historically, white people have used the one drop rule, right? If you are have one drop, right, and this was a legal thing at one point, right? If you have one drop of, of black blood in you, you're black, you know, for all legal purposes. And, and that, in many ways, um, still persists today. Uh, in general, if you are not white passing, if you're not visibly, obviously white, um, and you look black, then you're black. If you look white, then you're white, right? And so it's, it, it was interesting for me because white people all, to, for, to them, I was a black guy. I was a black kid. I was a black man. I was a black basketball player. I'm a black lawyer now. Whatever I am, you just add black to it, and that's what... I'm black dude. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But to black people, it's a little bit different. And you pointed out some of the intricacies there. It's more complicated when it comes to the integration on the black side. Because there's so much pain there. There's a lot there, right? There's a lot there. There has been so much taking from black culture. So much, hey, I'm black. Hey, I, I can relate to you. Hey, I, I'm right there with you. And it's like, no... 
maybe you're not, right? Like you can't just kind of take that at face value. And there's, you know, I wrote a book called Black Resilience, The Blueprint for Black Triumph in the Face of Racism. And it details my experience growing up in really the middle of nowhere in Canada, surrounded by white people. And then at age 14, just being plucked down into Raleigh and Durham, North Carolina, with all black teammates, with, you know, I'm going to church, I'm going to Christian Faith Center Academy with a 100% black congregation at church on Sunday, and just a totally different world, right? And what I learned in real life and also through research is that black people treat you as black if you can prove that you have a shared experience, that you experience the world the way that they do, right? Because if you grew up privileged, right, even if you're, for me, my mom's white, right? My dad was born in Nigeria. He defected. The only reason why I exist is because he played for the Nigerian national basketball team uh, and the world championships were in Edmonton, Alberta in 91. And the whole team, because things weren't very good in Nigeria at the time, the whole team defected. And voila. Now, (laughs) I'm telling you, so that's the only reason why I even exist. But it's this weird, like, shared pain thing. And, like, I've gotten into heated discussions with people, um, with with the black community, where some people, they don't get it. They they doubt whether I've been through what they've been through, whether we have that shared pain to unite us. And, you know, I have to say, like, you don't know what you don't know what it's like. You think it's hard to be in America with your people? Imagine being on the front lines without anybody. You're just the black family in the midst of a sea of white. Nobody comes for you. It's incredible what that's like. I got tied to a tree by skinheads and stoned with rocks and nobody cared. Didn't make the news. The cops didn't even do anything about it because there's no one to get angry. There's no one there. It's just one black family in the whole town, right? My teachers, when I got in trouble, they'd say, get this N-word out of my classroom. No, why? Because they could. They could say that. What was I going to (laughs) do? Yell? Say F you? Like, what am I going to do? What's my mom going to do? Right? And so it was, for me the most freeing thing in the world to come to America. When I came, when when my two feet landed on U.S. soil, and I know a lot of people, like, it's hard, because I I just happen to love America. But it's because of my experience. I went from homelessness, my teachers, they would just write F before I even gave the paper in. They're just like, no, this black kid, just like, it was bad. And people think there's not racism in Canada. But when I got to the U.S., it just was a freeing situation for me. Like it was like what you said about what we were saying about hearing a song that like, OK, this song makes me know I'm not alone in this one little corner of my life. But like, you know, times a billion, like you get to a, you get to a place and it's like all of your childhood experiences are, are real. And there's yes. an entire network and culture and a beautiful culture at that. Like the world's most, it's the world's favorite culture. Like yes. everybody's favorite expressions of humanity are the very people that nobody is sure whether or not they're fully human. 
it's, yeah, it's like the, the the biggest example of how crazy modern um, what modern white supremacist reality is just to have numbers just imagine just just having numbers like i i've had a di- i walked with a different type of confidence i just right cuz it didn't matter like before it was if there's racist people this could be terrible for me i could lose my life i could never get a good grade ever right i could like it, it's very limiting because i have no support at all whereas in the us it was like i have some numbers here like there's some people out there people are talking about this people are defending themselves people are having these conversations about racism which just are not being had over there there's whole departments at schools there's a whole form of music there are religions dedicated to this there's a section yes. at the bookstore there's like a, a radio station there's meetings Yes. There's a nod, there's even just a knowing nod of another person that's just like, hey, you good? You know, yeah, man. It, it's just this idea that things can be terrible, and you can you can acknowledge that, for example, racism exists, and you can acknowledge that poverty and homelessness as a child is. A bad, it's it's a bad place to start in life, right? Your your odds, your statistics, the ratio, right? It's not looking good for you. You can acknowledge that those real um, variables, right? That that could be bad for um, in in terms of being predictors for your future success. But you can also acknowledge that it may not stop you, right? And and you can you can overcome it. And I think that's a tricky dynamic. I'm interested in hearing your view right now because like thinking about George Floyd, right? To set the table for you, George Floyd and everything that happened, what motivated me to write the book was I was being forced and I saw my brothers and sisters in my community being forced to consume trauma porn nonstop. There was just videos. I'm talking Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn. There were just videos of black people getting gunned down everywhere. And it was, it, it, it hurt me, man. And it, and it was, it didn't hurt me in a surprising way. Like, man, I didn't know this was happening. It hurt me because it was damaging to our people. Like it was killing our our mojo is killing our spirit. It was breaking our courage, right? To see that over and over and over again. Sure, it was raising a- awareness for white people, but at what cost, right? And like learned helplessness is caused by a person who's been traumatized and has learned that it doesn't matter what they do, they're not going to succeed anyway. And I just like, how do you see that balance between trying to? Yeah. Well, this is one of those things where it's like, do I identify as white or black? So when there's a conversation about and like internal conversations about like within the black community about how should one respond to think about conceptualize the reality and, and the the you know, all the complexities and everything of being black, like how, what should be one's response? How should they see it? How should they understand it? I don't have a public opinion about any of that. And I don't think that anybody who's not not black should, 
I don't think that it's it's white people's job to tell black people or to even discuss amongst themselves. This is how black people should see that. This is what's good for black people. This is what's bad for black people. You know what I mean? Now I'm I live in that world and I live in that community and there's a plethora of opinions that I that I know all exist about everything under the sun. You know what I'm saying? So like you what you were saying. There's a conversation around should a person whose parents immigrated recently within the last couple of generations from the African continent, should that person be considered the same status as an African-American person who's descended from enslaved Africans? I know that's a conversation and there's people on both sides of it. I know the conversation very well. I know all the points. And privately, I have an opinion because I'm a person who, with proximity to all of that. But one of the things that's important for me is like white people should not think that their opinions are even worthy of being heard with regard to what's going with regard to what's going on with black people. So my re my shift is always like, okay, what is important for me, especially because the most of the people that listen to me are are white. Um Yeah, that's I'm always in a in a public conversation. I'm always going to be thinking about it that way. And this is what I mean by like, if there's a white responsibility, I'm here for the white responsibility. Even if on the inside, I don't necessarily identify with it. I also am close enough to it and know the situation well enough to know that a white person's opinion, this is, it just doesn't freaking matter. It's not it's helpful to anybody. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's interesting where we are right now. And, and when you, as a Black person, write a book about Black empowerment and Black resilience, it's fascinating what that looks like, right? So publishing is ridiculously, insanely white. It's so white, it like, I knew it was white, and it still blew my mind how white it was, right? I, I spoke to hundreds and hundreds of publishers, um, and, I, and I told them, hey, listen, this is unique. I'm writing to a black audience, which is very unique. Most books about racism are written to a white audience, right? Because the the idea is that you're you're preaching to the white people. Yeah, yeah. Hey, buy this book, change yourself. There's good I mean, they're good people and there's a market there clearly. And so but like one issue is do all of these conversations need to be had with white people. And what does that do again to learn helplessness, right? Because again, think about this fundamentally. If the important person that needs to be spoken to, the person in power, the person who can change things, if that person is always the white person, that's devastating to be black because you're just like, oh, I hope that that conversation over there goes well. I, I hope that all those woke white people who are reading those books help me after and like change the world and stop racism. I, I really hope, fingers crossed, I'm not involved in the conversation though. They didn't write the book to me. I'm not in the conversation, right? So that's one problem that I want to solve by writing to a black audience. The other aspect is just have it come from a place of experience. Have it come from somebody who's dealt with racism. Someone who has not all the perspective, but one perspective that hopefully different people can relate to. And then I can go interview people who have other perspectives so that I can build something that's comprehensive. So this idea of a black author writing a book about black empowerment to a black audience was very, very rare. It was almost unheard of. And so the publishers were like, 
listen, first of all, to your first point, we don't know which way to come out on any of this stuff anyway. We don't know anything was, was kind of the first thing. It was like, we just kind of like to stay away from a lot of books um, about this topic. Some big publishers would say that. Some would say, just totally bluntly, Brother Ali, they would just say, listen, middle-aged white women buy all the books. And, <laughs> and so that's, that's really the, the demographic that you need to be focused on. And, and we don't think black people buy a lot of books or read a lot of books because of the statistics. And therefore, we don't think that there's a market for this book. And that was the most frustrating comment to hear because you're like, you're perpetuating a system that like devalues black thought and also perpetuating a, if it is true, right? A Like if you think that not enough black people read, might it possibly be partly because you're not publishing books that are directed to a black reader that are relevant to black people and communities, right? So it was fascinating kind of getting into that world and realizing how, how, how that system works on the fly while trying to spread a message of positivity. And I feel like I can relate to you a lot, Brother Ali, when you talk about like your message and not being able to control whether it's mainstream or not. It's like, I have a lot of great views. I say a lot of really artistic and dynamic things. I tell a lot of amazing stories that nobody could rival, but I can, I don't choose whether it's mainstream or not, you know? It's deep, man. It reminds me so much of just dealing with the music industry. I know all of these amazing black artists that are, you know, my friends and my community and like the people that I do life with that are incredible, that can do, you know, so much musically. And it's, a, it's just a really strange space. Like if you look at like, you know, I think Merce is a great example. Uh, Open Mike Eagle is another great example. Saw Rock is another great example. It's like a bunch of people that are incredible. And there's basically the mainstream music industry is selling black art primarily to white teenagers. And so like white teacher, white teenagers need black men to either be really dangerous or really very safe. And they basically need black women to be objects of sexual desire. And that's it. You know what I mean? Then you got the underground, but on the underground, it's like, ah, yeah, but we really prefer this to come from white artists. You know what I'm saying? So you have like these artists that are in this really kind of like middle space. I also think about, um, there's a really dope author, my favorite modern author, um, Kiese Lehman. I had him on my, on my show, the Travelers Podcast. And he was talking about his struggle to, you know, he's written incredible stuff, man. Long Division, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. He wrote this book called Heavy. Like, man, he's written some of the most amazing joints. And he had to go with this little under the, you know, under the radar white publisher who jacked him, took, took all of his money. He had to buy himself out of that contract. And now he's able to re-release his books and he's like working on doing them for TV and stuff. But man, it's, it's tough. yeah, I'm, it's tough I'm, industry. I've just seen that struggle, man. 
it's it, it's tough in in so many different ways when you're trying to stay true to your artistry and you're trying to stay true to who you are and the message that, that you're trying to put out there like it took me years like it and i understand that struggle like it took me years of just pounding the pavement just like pitching 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 having a black editor at one of the major publishers in the in the country love the book love the message, think it was critically important, take it up the chain and have some white guys in a boardroom say no at the last minute. And and it, it was like one of those things where you're just feeling like, wow, like the, the world, whoever's in control, whoever's in power, right? Like they didn't want this message. And I think something I've observed, and I, and I wanna know your view on this just generally, is that messages that are not polarizing, messages that truly do make a difference. Like the message of my book, I, I'm not about attacking white people. I'm, I'm just about real solutions. I'm just really about like, listen, racism sucks. I hope it changes. I hope the world changes. But I'm not going to bet my life on it, and neither should you. So let's have a huddle right now and figure out what we're going to do to succeed. And I thought about... What if I was a truly racist person, if I was the most racist person in the world, what would I hate more than anything? What would be my worst absolute nightmare in the world? And it would be black people feeling empowered, black people feeling like racism not going to stop me. Come at me. You're going to have to kill me. Right. Because some people will say that it's like racism can't uh, stop me. Perfect antithesis is black people coming together, being empowered. And I will say that that's the one thing that, the one thing I will say publicly is that the community that that really embraced me and also taught me and trained me came from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Marcus Garvey and like black empowerment. You know what I mean? So I'm inclined to believing in that. Like that's, that speaks to me. But the thing, you know, the, the, Civil rights movement also speaks to you know all of it. Like I'm, I'm here for all of it. It's just interesting that the mainstream would prefer, like you, you want to find like as a betting man. If I'm trying to find someone who's going to be the next big thing that everybody's going to put on, I want to. It's going to be the most vile, violent, ridiculous lyrics you've ever seen coming from. A just <laughs> somebody who like listen hip hop and I, and I like some of that stuff like there's there's some there, there's different brands of hip hop right and and people are just telling their story and so I'm not gonna hate on somebody that's their, that's somebody's story right it may not be critical core values that I want my sons and daughters to to grow up um, kind of embodying right and, and trying to imitate right. Um, but some of these rappers coming up, like, why are we can't as a society dictate what artists are going to create, right? But I just find it interesting that the mainstream always happens to choose the most violent, most vile, the 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 furthest from, in my opinion, the version of 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 blackness and and society that is is going to take our community to the next level that that stuff gets labeled white oh you, you care about school you know how many black people told me that's white i i got good grades and i i would get teased by people 
saying, oh, that's white. That's white. You're doing well in school is white. And, like, it took me a long time to have the confidence to be like, that's bullshit. That's bullshit that you're saying that. It's not white. Anybody can get good grades. <laughs> yeah. And, I'm, and, you know, and this is all dictated by a white power structure, you know, and it's really important, man. It's I, like I've always believed it's really very, very deeply important to study the history of white supremacy in all aspects, to study like what has happened under white domination in education in all forms. So, if you know, one of the movies that, that I just love is Bamboozled, Spike Lee's movie Bamboozled where you know he really does a great job of showing these these different um you know different expressions of of blackness and how the white controlled media has always related to that stuff and it's important to know like to know that history and then know like who do i who do i where do i see a correlation between the way i'm showing up and what's what's happened in the past and what happened to the people in the past you know what I mean? So I, I look at that all the time. Like I look at, I try to take my cues from people like Paul Robeson, um, you know, and I mean, those are people that were, that were outcasted and people that were, you know, in a lot of ways smitten and, and, you know, really like bore the brunt of, of what they said and the decisions that they made and things like that. But yeah, man, I mean, historically like Hollywood and, all of the major platforms, they've all been dominated by white people and by, you know, and, and, and right now, you know, it's interesting that, you know, a lot of times when we talk about white people, people think about them individually. And I'm not talking about individuals, but I'm talking about the way that groups of people enact systems of power on each other. Like just politics is a reality. And so groups of people enact power and they, you wield that power in certain ways and every group has its own realities and every group deserves its own critique, especially when they're in power. And white people haven't always existed. That category just existed for the last 500 years. And ever since that point, it's important to look at how it's operated. And yeah, man, they definitely have always chosen, you know, you can look at somebody like Candace Owens and see uh, how that Proto to how that, um, you know, her, um, not even her as a personality or as a person, but the way that that specific uh, type uh, type of person has been used by the white media since the very beginning. You know what I mean? And, and a, yeah. yeah, I mean, if you were to have written a book that like, black people need to do this and black people are messing up and, you know what I mean? I'm going to teach you. Like, if you had taken that perspective in your book like just made that little switch you know what i mean to be like the right wing leaning uh you know uh black part you know conservative thing you probably would have found people to to distribute your book they probably would have put a whole bunch of a bunch of money behind you you know what i mean because it serves that it serves that end yeah it's you, you gotta you, you gotta stay true to who you are right um, I, I was offered a lot of money to, to write a legal thriller, right? Cause as an attorney at a big law firm, 
that's uh, the natural. They do want black authors because they do, from a diversity perspective, want to put on black authors. Um, but they they really don't want you to talk about race, right? They, they really don't want you to go there. Um, and even even if you were to come up with a very divisive message, um, it would likely sell better in their mind. And so it may look more lucrative, but it's still a risk because it's it's so finicky. I, I just think that, that, that the Uncle Tom sort of narrative, it's no one loves it more and puts more money behind sharing that narrative than very, very racist white people, right? This whole divisive, like anything that will put pit people against themselves and say, oh, like, no, no, it's it's white to do that. It's white to do that. You you, you can't leave the hood. You, you can't move to the suburbs. You can't get an education. You can't become a lawyer. You can't, right? Like, all these different limits, it's like, really, the, the only thing I can do to be successful that is going to be accepted is sports or or hip-hop like or, or jazz. Like, why can't – it doesn't need to have been historically black for it to be something that the black community can do. We can do anything. Newsflash. We can do literally anything. We're And we're doing it. We're in boardrooms. I mean, history, what history proves is if you just make it fair – Black people will excel in all areas. Yes. And yes. this is me saying this. I'm not speaking for anybody else. Not speaking for yeah. you. Yeah. Black, black people are the original archetypes of humanity. Everything that ha- comes, everything that grows out of a tree was present in the seed. Everything that human beings have done is there in the first human beings. The 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 archetype prototype the the you know the seed from which all of the human family grows is there in the original people that matters to me mm-hmm. and i think that and i think that the main reason in my observation is like white people need black people so badly like cannot figure out how to pray dance you know have cut off all the the streams to things that white people have figured out how to do Black people aren't allowed to do those things. Anything that that white people can figure out to do, cut those things off. You can't do those. We're going to do those completely by ourselves as much as possible. And, you know, but then the things that we don't want to get our hands dirty doing, like crime, we'll let you do that part because we need the the illegal stuff. We need the drugs. We need the sex workers. We need the stolen goods. We need, we want access to the stuff, but we're not going to do it. So we'll let you do that part of it. Yeah, right. Yeah, and then the things that that white people cannot just cannot objectively do. If you put somebody on a basketball court or on the microphone, you it's just going to be objectively there that like nobody's going to deny who's superior in that moment. Give them both a saxophone and like let whoever play next to John Coltrane. I'm sorry, it's not even the same conversation. Right. So like all of those all of those avenues just, you know, being cut off. So it's like white people need black people so bad and at the same time hate to be compared. It's it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting to think about where it comes from, right? It it comes from this idea that at the very beginning, it's well, what are we gonna allow? Black people have their freedom now. They're no like what are we going to allow black people to do? What, what, are, where is going to, where is going to be their, their place, right? And there's, 
this this kind of pigeonholing, right, that has begun to happen. Like, yeah, black people are are often great athletes. They're often great musicians, but there are amazing. There's hedge fund managers and traders on Wall Street and doctors. Yeah, that and, idea. Yeah, that idea had to be developed. I'm saying the first generation after slavery did did everything. Their yeah. entire business districts that white people could not compete with. You know what I'm saying? Like there was every type of infrastructure was being developed by the black community immediately because white people didn't think they had to limit. Like after all these years of feeling like a slave master, they didn't have to. They didn't think they had to limit people. So it was just like, whatever. Yeah, let them go. They'll never. Fit. They're going to starve to death and and come back begging to be sharecroppers. And then immediately, the first generation was like, schools, funeral parlors, stores, import export, every type of business, Black Wall Street, and like suddenly within a generation, like white people couldn't compete with that. And so it was like, no, we've got to figure out what your place is. And so that 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 like started happening. And what's so crazy what you're saying is like, and I've seen it happen. So like, man, I've seen it happen where this idea of what you're saying about like the authors that like, we want black authors, we just don't want them to talk about being black. Like that's slavery. We're like, we want your black body to be here. Like we need you to say like, look, we've got blacks, but yeah. you can't show up as your full black self because that's, you know what I mean? Our way. So like, right, so like right from your soul in a way that's that's engaging to people, but not that part of your soul. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, how's that not ownership? And we don't want you to talk to, to these people. We want you to talk to white people, right? Just that, that whole dynamic is, is it's, it, it's something that I think the only way to change it, I've done a lot of thinking about it. My view, and you know, I'm curious your view, but my view is we need to shine the spotlight on different kinds of black success than we have historically. We don't put the, think about it. We don't put the shine on to black lawyers. We're not putting them up there with the spotlight. We're not giving them the mic. We're not writing articles about it. We're not making movies saying, hey, how the hell did you do this? How did you grow up in the projects and become a billionaire? How did you do this stuff? We're not making that part of the narrative. We're telling a lot of stories, but we're not telling the modern black success story because there's tons of them. And what happens is you grow up not knowing that there's so many people in the black community that are transcending racism. They are overcoming po poverty. They are getting into those almost all white boardrooms at Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies, and they all have incredible stories. If you talk to any one of these black men and women, they have crazy stories of like, man, it was crazy. Let me tell you how I did it. It was ridiculous. Take notes, right? And like, that's what this book was about. And I want to, I started a foundation as well called the Black Resilience Foundation. And the whole goal of the foundation is to find people like that and give them a mic and put the camera in their face and say like, please tell your story so we can share it with as many people as possible so that others who are struggling, who are in ridiculous situations who feel like there's no way I can be successful, there's no blueprint here for me, can understand and have some sort of empathy from seeing somebody else go through something that might be similar and get to a place where 
it might be somewhere that you might want to go. Because for me, I initially wanted to become a doctor. Didn't become a doctor, but it doesn't matter. I believed that I could become a doctor, and so I became whatever I wanted. And we, I just want to free, the, you know, any community that that's been marginalized, right? Uh, free them from this this limiting mentality that that you're going to be stopped from from getting there somehow. There are there are certain like networks within the black community, which is you know it's interesting because like my personal experience is like you know how sometimes if um, you know you, you like. You, say your mom and grandmother like they're nice they're nice ladies they're nice people they're not mean they're nice people but when company comes over like if another kid comes over they're extra nice and like they're nice in ways that you never you're just like who is this lady who are these people like they're extra nice like if someone's at your house or like you know um I feel like that's been my experience in the black community like I feel like I'm getting the best of so many of the people that I'm with but um there are networks, you know, for example, like that's that's the role that a lot of historically black colleges have played. You know what I'm saying? Is that like you talk to people that have gone to Morehouse, like there's an entire network. I was talking to young guru, uh, Jay-Z's um, uh, uh, engineer and DJ on my podcast. And, you know, he went to Howard and like the people that went to Howard University, there's like a, a very, very real network and people keep up with each other and they know like multiple generations you know what i'm saying like who went to the and then there's morehouse which is another one you know what i'm saying that's where spike lee went and so this person no that's where i i, I want to say chadwick went and like you know what i'm saying you start learning that there's these entire networks of people um but those networks are they can be challenging to access that's the feeling that i get anyway definitely challenging i'm I'm definitely trying to get in with 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 some of those folks i mean it's it's tough i wish i went to howard (laughs) i uh actually there's a ton of big time attorneys at at my firm who we got a really solid collective of folks who who went to hbcus and and howard in particular um it the numbers are big like i mentioned at at the very beginning of the podcast having the numbers feeling like i got support like we're doing this together, we have each other's back, is incredible, it's a big piece of it. But the other piece of it is the crossing the aisle. It is the, I call it building a bridge. Um, The only thing that I've seen that is disadvantageous to the bigger picture of of black success, the networking and and the click, it's great. It's incredible to have the strong black networks I think it's necessary. What sometimes happens is they can become so insular that nobody is making connections outside of it, right? Um, And you'll have groups at companies, at law firms, music, that they don't want to branch out. And so, like, for example, if, if you meet somebody who is white and doesn't really seem like they're seeing it your way or they're treating you in a way we all know how it feels right in the black community you know how it feels they're treating you in a way that it just it just smells like racism it just they're not treating you properly and you don't there's no reason why and it's frustrating it's not an embrace it's not i'm not being embraced yeah 
Like, I remember, like, one perfect example. It's little stuff. I was at an internship. I won't say where. And, you know, I'm there. It's, it's a pretty elite internship. I'm the only black kid, black in, intern for sure, of course. And, you know, I'm there with two, two peers. Uh, went to similar level schools, whatever. And we're doing the introductions around the office, right? You go shake different people's hands. Hey, nice to meet you. Oh, welcome to the office and, and blah, blah, blah. And you just do the little chit-chat. And most people were really nice because most people, I think, are pretty good and not racist. But there was this one guy who was really important. He happened to be like the person who I had circled on the list, really needed because he, he, he was a supervisor level dude, right? And so he was important for me to get some FaceTime with. And, you know, I went last. He, had, he shook, the, shook the different people's hands. And, and for each person before me, he was really engaged with them. He shook their hand. He asked them about them. He, there was a little, you know, back and forth that happened. And it got to me. And I kid you not, Ali, he didn't even look at me. <laughs> He did a little, oh, yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. He didn't even look at me. And it was this, like, oh, and I was waiting. I was last, right? And so I was, like, excited to have a conversation with this guy. And, like, I was like, oh, man, okay. And, like, because I had been through similar things like that in the past, my next move was, like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I? I'm not quitting. I'm not going to start avoiding this guy. I'm not going to write this guy off. I'm not just going to quit. This person is confused. This person is confused about who I am and my identity. This person thinks that I'm not a high-value person. At least I'm not high-value enough to be worth a couple moments of his time to look me in the eye, to shake my hand, and to have a couple minutes of a conversation. And so how can I help this person through that? Because, yes, it is their problem, and it's really easy to just kind of write that person off and say, not my person. I'll go make it through somewhere else. I'll go make it through a different person. I'll make a different connection. I'll make it in spite of this person. Building that bridge, if you're able to break that down and help that person learn who Brother Ali is, who Braden Anderson is, it, it really is transformative in terms of what it can do to, to your path and your journey to success. And I've seen it happen so many times with him and with so many other people after that, that you can you can chip it you can chip away at people, and it's it's hard to swallow your pride. And a lot of people in the black community will respond to that and say, "Listen, I shouldn't have to do that, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that." And like I get that completely. I think it just comes down to this: the the premise at the very beginning is it's are you willing to bet your life on it? Right, like, there's a lot of things that happen that we're forced to do that we shouldn't be forced to do, but it's not about the other person. It's about you. It's about your success. It's about generational success for your kids and their kids, and changing the game so that your great grandkids never would ha- dream of having to do that, and your kids hopefully wouldn't have to do that. But you know, I, and and that may be one of those areas where you're like, listen. You know, can't speak from the black perspective, but well, yeah. No, I mean, what I what I hear when I hear that is the the deep violence of not only that experience, but then also 
that that for so many people is connected to generation after generation of that same person that you're sitting there with. In this case, it's like, I want a job, you know, maybe a generation before that, it was like, this person is here to rape the women in this house. You know what I mean? Or this person is, is, you know, the, the one that's going to decide whether or not somebody gets lynched or decides whether or not somebody's children get to eat or get to stay in their family or like, so for so many people, there's, there's this, literal something that's happened on a body level, on a nervous system level, on a, you know, something that's happening in the body that is very real. So my part of that conversation, you know, as somebody that descends from European American people, from white people, and then also those are the people that listen to me is like, yes, okay. The rest of the, the rest of the white people in that room are nice, like you said, and I believe they're nice. And I believe that people's default setting is nice. But what is it that that what is it that makes no other white person see that that happened? Right. Mm. You know what I'm saying? That mm. this raggedy mother like literally shook every other person's hand and then gave you the fish hand and the no the not real mm. ha- eye contact and a, nobody saw that. Mm. Nobody in their mind were like, hey, how come he just did that kid like that? All these other young people, they all got a real handshake. They all got a real, how, wait, how come, you know what I mean? I never Why thought is it that in a nice ass white people? Because I'm saying that's, so So when I'm like, okay, what's the white responsibility? That's the way that I'm thinking. And at what point do white people start creating culture together around, if we really are like, not only am I not actively involved in racism, but if but if a person is not noticing that, then you're not a person. And if you notice something like that and you don't say anything, you know, or they'll sneak off to the side and have a private moment with you. Hey, man, just want to say that was messed up. No, go tell him. Like, go, go, go talk to the other white people about, you know what I'm saying? Because there's a cultural like freezing that happens with white people where like white people have not developed like cultural, communal embodied tools to to how's that going to happen and so i've been many times have been the white person that says something and then gets castigated and then you know i'm saying you know and that's cool that i get to feel tough by doing that but that has changed zero structure just from me being cool it's a lot like okay i'm gonna go get in a fight with the guy that's beating up his girlfriend and then the police arrest me it doesn't actually help Right. That's my learning. That's my takeaway from that. That didn't actually help anybody. It might have made me feel like a big, bad truth teller. But like, where's the part where white people decide that, like, we're not going to be we're not going to allow racism anymore? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And when somebody yeah. does something like that, we're going to ha- we're going to spend because it took 500 years for European crop shit like uh, you know, people that were just working the land to turn into people that thought they were white and entitled to all this stuff. That took hundreds of years. That's not a human thing. So it might take generations for like white people, but like, where's that part? And so for me, that's automatically where I go. Yeah. And I think that that, that is a really important aspect of, of being an ally. I think that's truly the most important personally uh, aspect of being an ally because that's the one thing that I can tell you as a black person, 
we can't do and it doesn't work to do and certain people do try right but like this whole idea that you can call out white people for their racism you can right as a black person you can do that it's not gonna work well for you right it's it's not gonna because your goal is not to offend that person or put that person in a defensive posture do anything like that and a lot of times it is unconscious like this guy i swear to you ali I don't think he even noticed it. Like, I really, I think he he truly didn't value my presence to his core. Like, he truly, generationally, whatever, like, he saw me and didn't see somebody worth talking to and shaking their hand. And just subconsciously, like, didn't do it. And, like, if I were to say, hey, why didn't you shake my hand? Are you racist? Or, like, whatever. He'd just be like, oh, my God. Like, you know, now I'm going to avoid this guy forever. You know, this guy's terrifying. He yelled at me. Um, Yeah, you might get pulled out of there. You might get, you know what I'm saying? You might might get uh, charged with something. You might get harmed for doing that. And But if you had an ally like that, that can probably in private would be nicer, but. Even, Even deeper than like the ally thing. It's like, man, white people who do stuff like that or think about that stuff as like, I'm doing this so that I'm doing this for Brayden. Like, well, man, then you're then you're never going to get anywhere. Right. The idea has to be like, I want to be a full human being. I don't like that. Yeah, that's not what we do. And it, the we. Yeah. Like, I can't be a full human being in a in a in a world where other people are killed for my comfort, like where other people are killed so that I never have to look at myself. Like something in my soul is going to be deeply destroyed by that happening. Like I'm saying, for that guy to get to a place where he doesn't even notice that he didn't shake, you know what I'm saying, your hand. And like you're clearly, uh, you're a big physical presence, you're charismatic, you're obviously, you know what I'm saying? Like for somebody to not, like who wouldn't want to shake your hand just because you're you? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, well, who? Want to shake your raggedy ass old old rich you know what I'm saying wrinkled up hand anyway like who want to shake your damn hand anyway right. trying to come here trying to breathe life into your company and give all these new you know what I mean bringing all of these these like resources but I'm saying like that's yeah. that's hundreds of years of like hundreds of of years of, of like men and women had to die for and hundreds of his ancestors had to sit and watch that and not say anything. Like they attended lynchings. They sat there and watched it. And the human heart and soul is like, this is wrong. But hundreds of years, nobody's saying anything. They take pictures with the body. I'm sorry for saying, but like horrible things. I don't, you know. So like that took a long time for a person to get to the point where they don't even notice that they're not shaking your hand. Bias is one of those things that, that creeps up, right? Like I think identity is a really important aspect to, to everything right in, in life because we assign different values and characteristics to people and we kind of build the, the identity of, of, of who they are, right? Like brother Ali, he's a legendary rapper. He's, you know, he's a legend in the game. He's a veteran in the game. He right, like it's the narrative around who you are and what you know about that person. If someone just meets you, right, it's oh, okay, he's this 
albino guy. I don't know who he when is. I'm in, when I'm in Istanbul, I'm just a fat American that doesn't know Turkish. <laughs> right? That, idiot. And that's how you get treated. I am just an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and like when I first step foot into new jobs, new companies, new roles, I'm just a tall black guy with a huge, you know, with covered in tattoos, right? And like, I don't know, what, maybe he played sports, maybe he's a criminal, but he's a black guy. That's all they know. And you have to, what's unfortunate is there's that work in the back end because there's no assumptions that are favorable for you. With privilege, people want to know what's privilege. Privilege is when all the assumptions, all the gaps of knowledge where they don't know who you are, they really, they're guessing. It's when all those assumptions are good. And when they're not good, right, it hurts. And you have to do the work, right? Like with new people that, I, that I'd meet in the office, it would be like, I'd have to try to add, and it's not all like work related. It would be like, you know, I'd see a Steelers poster on the wall and I'd be like, oh, okay, I can talk to you about football. And after the Steelers game, oh, you know, tough game, blah, blah, blah. You know, you think you guys will ever get a good quarterback, right? Give him a hard time. Try to, okay, Braden, I know that he's tall, he's black, he likes football. And then, right, the next time I might see, oh, there's a picture of his daughter, you know, in the photo frame there when I walk by his office. But, like, hey, I have a daughter too. You know, I noticed the picture, like, you know, my girl's four, you know, she's turning five soon, you know, blah, blah, blah. And try to just, oh, and then next time they're like, okay, Braden, he has a daughter, he likes football, whatever. And you just kind of start building and building to try to fill those gaps. But what is unfortunate is that, like, we all have to fill those gaps to build relationships with people. But what's unfortunate is that before I fill them, they're filled with negative stuff. Yeah, you got to be like, hey, I'm human. Guess what? I'm actually human. Believe it or not, I'm human. I'm actually a whole human. I'm actually not. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not just a, yeah, man. And I mean, so much of it is man everybody needs black people and especially white people don't like being compared because it's like what is it what does it mean if like well what if you're taller than me you're faster than me and you're smarter than me then then who the hell am i and it's like man that's something that that's part of the work that like white people need to do together right. you know what i'm saying i remember Tony morrison one time was was in an interview and she was like what would happen if you didn't what what if you what would happen if you didn't hold other people back hmm. like would you still feel good about yourself would you still you know i think that's what that's, that's, yeah i mean certain and, people and all that you're describing is like that's why that dude and like it, it's not even about that individual or you as an individual it's about like the this is just what life is this is a historical fact that this is what life is. You know what I'm saying? So like all of the all of the internal like labor that you have to do to prove to this person to like prove something that's unprovable and, and, and is self-evident already. And it's only based on his sickness that he doesn't know you're a human being that you got to feel you. You, you got to be a psychologist that 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 like rectifies his insanity that thinks that you're not human you know what i'm saying and that's and then this this dude gets to live 10 years longer on average because he didn't have to go through life doing all that just to show up to be good at a punk ass job right just for the chance to be dope at a job 
To me, I'm like, okay, this is why me and my man Brendan, BK1, he was my DJ when I first started rapping. And I bonded with him over being like a deeply committed anti-racist white person. Like the, the person I know that like, no question about him, he identifies as white. Everything in his life has been white. The first white person that I met that was deeply committed to being anti-racist to the point where he's down to make mistakes, he's down to be wrong, he's mm. down to like be da in danger, he'll sacrifice stuff, he'll, you know what I'm saying? The mo one of the most committed people that I've known. And so well, for me and him, like so much of what we do is like, this is a good reminder for me and I appreciate it. It's like, man, we have very, very serious work to do for the for the people who understand themselves to be white and want to be a force of good. It's like, man, being nice isn't going to do it. I appreciate you, you guys a lot. And, um, and not just the sentiments, but, but all, all of the, the courage and, and, and the value that you guys bring to the table that, that your artistry has, has brought to the table. Um, I want to, before we wrap up, talk about what you're working on right now um, and, and what's next for, for Brother Ali. Just kind of a, a snapshot in time of, I, I know you got the Travelers podcast going um, and, and I've caught a few of those episodes. Those were really interesting. But uh, what else are you working on and um, what's next? So I have a couple of musical projects. My main, my main thing was to, to move to move out of America um, and, and get my family out of America for the time being anyway, and to really become as free and independent as possible. Um, so I was with a really amazing underground record label for 20 years, and now I'm operating, you know, just me and Brendan and a few other partners, you know, just being fully, completely independent. So we're just not like, you know, learning to release music and do these podcasts and um you know so it's a number of things like i do a a series of self-produced one minute freestyles that i release just periodically on social media and then i make collections of them every now and then called brother minister um i have new music that we like you mentioned going through it i appreciate that a lot because yeah we've put out that instrumental is insane insane thank you man me and Ant did that one together. So like Ant that produced my records and Atmosphere records. Oh wow! That was the first time he had co-produced something. Incredible. So he had the he had the music, but he didn't like the drums that he did. So I went in and redid the drums, and he was like, "Oh, now I like it." And oh. so that was the first time he ever co-produced something. It's just epic. You you know you got it right. Like, and there's there's a lot of Ant produced beats that you get that feeling from. Where you're like, ooh, you got like the, the the goosebumps, right? You're like, oh man, this is this is something. This is tapping into something. He's a special dude, man. He's a special dude. Yeah, he. And it's interesting because Atmosphere and 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 Slug, their fathers are black and native and white, and their mothers are white. So by the one drop rule, they would be considered black. Like they grew up in black neighborhoods and black families. Aunt's right. name is Anthony Jerome Davis. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, and I didn't mention that atmosphere is obviously in my top five as well. We only got to three, don't, don't. but I mean, so, yeah. But those guys are considered white, just because right. most white people look at them and they're like, "Oh, they're white." 
You know what I mean? It's it's one of those like really strange things. And so they've always tried to carry themselves the way that they think white people should in the art form. Interesting. But yeah, so um, podcasting, making music. Um, um, so my catalog that I did with Rhyme Sayers is still at Rhyme Sayers. It's yeah. all love. It's all a great, beautiful relationship still. This yeah. is just more so about me spreading my wings and, yeah. you know, moving out of my parents' house type of thing. No doubt. Um, and so, yeah, so me and Brendan together set up Travelers Media, which is the podcast, the music. We do learning series. So like I do like online workshops for how to build a touring career, how to write hip hop songs. Um, I saw that. You know, yeah, different learning series. So basically all the different stuff that we do, we, we did set up a company um, so that we could do all of the things that we're producing. Do you think that through that, those writing workshops, because I saw that, that's really, really cool that you're doing that. Um, what an opportunity. I mean, for so many, I'm sure you're noticing like that you have this massive co collection of people who are both fans and also artists themselves and are inspired by you. And like that opportunity to, to attend a workshop that you put together, I'm sure is just amazing. Um, do you see any opportunities through that to end up adding artists to to your label and kind of helping them? Because that's usually that's sometimes how it starts, right? People are inspired by you that are also massively talented, and and they share they share some stuff with you, and you're like, "Dang, this is pretty good. Let's uh, let me see if I can help get this out there." Like, do you see any potential opportunities for that? So I've always helped other artists when I can. And like as an artist, the only thing that you can really do is just share people with your fan base. So like, you know, I bring people on tour and I have them open up at the at the shows. And so like you get 45 minutes of my audience's undivided attention and I'll let them know that I brought you here, that I want that I because I love you. Um, that's really the most you can that's do. Huge. And the yeah. thing is, and with a record label, I've never seen, I personally have never seen a situation where a record label is good for the artist. That, not in a complete way. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've seen a lot of people, and I know Rhymesayers really try, but I've like never seen a situation. What I see over and over again is artists struggling for their whole life and people that run so like even a successful artist has to perform their whole life james brown died on christmas out doing shows so did prince so did michael jackson so did all of these big artists died out on the road because they had to to keep going and like you know and music execs it's just a it's just a thing that i've i've never seen that done in a way that makes me think like i want to be that Interesting. You know yeah. so if if there are artists that I know and that are interested and want to know something from me, I'm trying to tell them like, yo, I'm trying to own my own stuff now. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think artists should own their stuff. If somebody helps me, then like I'm down to cut them in. Um, but I just think this is a time when everybody should just own their own stuff. So I'm not interested in putting out anyone else's music. But because because it's such a time when you can just do it yourself. I don't think the idea of somebody, the idea of someone who did not make music, owning part of that music feels wrong to me. Um, and it's not to discount their role. I know, you know, 
Um, but in a short answer is I'm not trying to be a record label like that. It's just a vehicle by which I can do the things I'm doing. Um, but when people come around, it's like, yeah, sharing the process of how to write songs, even if you don't want to do it as a career, it's a beautiful spiritual and psychological practice. And then teaching people how to build their own businesses. You know, I, I, I grew up around black barbers who like you start out renting a chair in somebody else's barbershop and then you give them a cut and you, you eventually hope to get to the point where you can own your own barbershop. You know what I'm saying? And you open your own shop and then now you've got other barbers working for you. And I really feel like music is one of those one of those things that young people and especially young black people, it's like young black people are at the be at the front of every cultural movement that's taken over the world, you know, for the last, you know, 300 years. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's just another example, Ali, of you taking what you do and the value that, that you have as a human being and, and doing it your way, right? In a way that you feel is the right way to do it. Because it obviously, when you have the level of success that you've had, it opens you up to be able to commercialize that. You can commercialize that. You could create your own version of Rhyme Sayers and you could make a ton of money. Right. Um, and yeah, is that that's a good question. It can be good for different people. It can be good. Like there are certain people, obviously, Rhyme Sayers has had a ton of amazing artists come in, get their feet under under them, and then they leave and do their own thing once they're strong enough. Once they kind of have that foundation, that platform, they kind of, you know, they'll exit and do their own thing. Um, but how cool would it be? And a lot of artists that it never took off. Most right. artists, it doesn't. True, and that's the other side of record labels right. that like they invest in a lot of artists. They put they pour money into a lot of people they believe in, and it doesn't work out. Right, that's the that's that's the other side of why I'm just like, man, I don't. I'm, you never I don't know. Know. Right. Yeah. So I gotta um, I gotta wrap this up soon, but I gotta share something with you and 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 ask you for for a favor. So, I in addition to to practicing law, uh, I started. A coffee company called Black Turtle Coffee, and a burger joint called Kook Burger. Both just like just thinking about like I love practicing law. It's fun. It's exciting. Really sophisticated clients, right? Like it's cool. It's it is fun to do. But there's something really special about like being a person who loves coffee and like having been frustrated by the local coffee shops around me and being like I could do this better. Right? Like I'm going to start importing beans from Brazil and like roasting single origin, all organic fair trade coffee. And like, you know, just like starting that out, like seeing a problem, seeing something that you love, that you have a passion for and just saying like, I'm going to do the best possible job that I can. And I'm going to create it because I love the product as a consumer and I want to share it with other people, right? It's very similar to music. And I did the same thing with burgers. It was like, I love burgers. And I've like taken a little piece. Like, I love In-N-Out. I love Shake Shack. I like Five Guys. I like, right? And there's like certain burger fi. Like, there's certain things that I like that they've done. But it's like, there are certain things I would do differently. Like, I went to Mr. Beast Burger the other day just because like, I love burgers. I want to try different things. And like, it's amazing through the art of building something yourself 
how you can create something that to you and hopefully other people, right, is the best, that it's, it has all the qualities. Say that again. What city are you in now? So right now we're in Brigantine. So Brigantine, New Jersey, which is just outside of Atlantic City, that's where we started. It's a smaller market, but it's right next to AC. It gets crazy mobbed in the summer, and it's all New York, Philly traffic. And so you get a really good sense of like whether your concept is going to work or not. And we, I mentioned this to you because we just expanded to Philly. We're opening up a version of Kook Burger which has a bar, so it's going to be called Kook Burger and Bar. So it's like smash patties, you know, certified Angus beef, specialty fries. We got Canadian poutine, right? Plug in the hometown favorite. Um, you know, just the delicious chef curated menu that that me and um, you know one of my childhood best friends from Canada we we put together. Also a massive brother Ali, an atmosphere fan. His name's Price. Um, but we just recently got a building. In Philly, and the the top two floors used to be a nightclub, okay, and so we're putting the Kookburger and Bar downstairs. The top two floors, it's incredible. There's a stage, there's a balcony on the third floor that overlooks the stage, but it's not a crazy big venue, right? Maybe 300 people max capacity. But I pitched the landlord. I was like, listen, because he's he's like in his 70s, old Greek dude, great guy, but he was like, he ran the club, like. T- five, 10 years ago. And he's like, I'm not doing clubs anymore. I'm old. I'm tired. I'm done. And he, it wasn't even for rent. And I was like, yo, his name's Pete. I was like, Pete. And cause when I saw the space, it just, it made me have flashbacks to atmosphere concerts. I went to in Calgary to when I went and I saw you in Brooklyn uh, a couple of years ago. And like, that's again, passion. I love that as a consumer. And it was like, it hit me and I just went into a pitch, like didn't know I was going to pitch him, just started pitching him on this comedy and live music venue. And I was like, let me do it. Like, this is going to be sick, right? Like, here's how it'll work. We'll do this. We'll do that. And it is at the very, very top of my list. I know that you could make more money playing in other places um, and certainly bigger places, but it is like an ultimate... My, Ultimate dream. dream to oh, have did you did you, you, did you send an email through our website? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forwarded that to um I forwarded that to the to the uh the people that book us, but they're just out on Christmas break right now. Okay, no worries. No worries. I wanted to give you a little preview so that you kind of understood like it's not listen, it's not Radio City, but like it's gonna be cool and cozy and like We'll pack it full of people who love you, and I just think it'd be awesome, and we can grab a beer after down at the Kookburger Bar. You know what's crazy is, um, so as of right now, I'm only scheduled to be in North America once in 2023. I'll probably accept more things, but as of right now, I'm doing a festival. I said yes to a festival in um, in Victoria. You see. Um, in- June, yeah, because nice. it's one of my, it's one of the most beautiful places ever. Like I love going to Victoria. Very they beautiful. Nice, awesome. They're doing like something with podcasts as well, so it's music and podcasts. So what I told the the people is like, if you guys are ready by June, if you want to book it for June, um, then we could we could possibly do both. 
You know what I mean? I basically, for me to go to leave my home and go to North America, there's a certain number that I need to make. And I think the offer that you guys made, I, it's a generous offer, but it's not that. So what I was like, man, let's find something else that I'm doing and attach it. So I right. think if we could do it in around that June time is probably likely. Can I make a, can I just make a suggestion? Yes. Okay. So I love burgers too. My family and I are Orthodox Muslims. We only eat halal meat, which is basically like the Muslim version of kosher. Um, what's happening in a lot of like Europe and Australia is that the Muslims show up there and the Muslims, whether they're like converts or whether they're immigrants, they prefer to eat halal meat. But and halal meat, it just means it's slaughtered a certain way, cared for a certain way. It's really high quality. You can get, you know, whatever quality you can get anything else. There's actually a beef line called Creekstone. That's the highest level of beef that they sell in North America. And it's and they slaughter it halal. Basically, what it means is anybody will eat it, but it means that the Muslims also can eat it. And the, and the thing is that a lot of those high-end burger joints are not halal. So me and my family had never tasted Five Guys. We had never tasted um, uh, Shake Shack. We never tasted a lot of the stuff that you mentioned until we moved to Istanbul because they have halal versions of those in uh. Istanbul. And in, in Philly, there's a huge Muslim population in Philly. And so if, if you were to offer um, the burger, if the meat was halal, and if you had a way of separating, like, I don't know if you guys are going to have bacon, if you had a way of, like, separating that to just ensure that, like, if you want a halal burger, you can get it. And it won't be contaminated, yeah. There, the fact there's a bar there means that Muslims probably won't hang out. But in terms of, like, the to-go situation or maybe even coming during the day, if it becomes, if it gets out in the Muslim community that these are high-end burgers and they're halal and it's black-owned, mm. Let's go. You might, you I might do love really this idea. I love this idea. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. That's what's also awesome about like owning the company is like, that's an incredible idea. We're going to do it. Like that's uh, an amazing idea. There, there's been a couple people who have mentioned something like that. It becomes tricky at some levels to, because there's so many different people who want different things, but like, that's something that it's it's not that hard to do in terms of food costs and different things like to have that variety. We have a veggie patty. We didn't do the impossible, but um, because we've found that a lot of vegetarians now, like it, especially if you've been vegetarian for a while, they don't necessarily want something that tastes like meat anymore. They want like a veggie thing. And so like we have a really, really delicious veggie patty that's literally a blend of vegetables that we smash on the grill just like we do anything else. Um, but we're definitely going to add a halal patty to the mix. That's a great idea. Or even I'm saying, so one of the things that they do in Europe is like, they just switch all their, they just only get the halal one. You know what I mean? So like just the meat that we serve here is halal for people who don't care. They won't know the difference, but the people who do care, They'll go to your spot. I know, I, you know, I know that when I lived in Minneapolis, if we had a place like that, like we, there was, it's really hard to find a good halal hamburger. Right. Um, I, so in, I love that. in New York, for example, in a village in New York, one of the, one of our like famous emails started a butcher shop and they have a place called Honest Chops, which is, 
It's in a village okay. right near the comedy cellar. Um, and you can go there and actually get like a really high quality that can like rival any of the quality burger places. That's a good idea. If they have a CAB, yeah, because it's just the way it's slaughtered. If they have a CAB halal, like it's it, it's one of those things. Certain people, they think things are for them or they're not for them. And I think there's a lot of like silly Americans who would be like, oh, it's halal. Like, I don't have halal. <laughs> I don't eat halal. Right. And they'll like they'll think that it's not for them. Or they'll think it's like that weird spices. Right. They, must have, think, like, they don't know what it means. It has, yeah. I mean, you don't have to make a big deal out of it. Is you right. know what I'm saying? It right. I get what you're saying. It, it could be like small in the bottom of the corner, but then I'm saying then get like then get freeway. Like then get the rapper freeway to go there. And like, just, you know, pay him to do an endorsement. It wouldn't be a crazy amount, but pay him to be like, yo, these burgers are crazy and they're halal. Hey, or get Brother Ali. Get Brother Ali to come out. Freeway's the man too. Um, we, we're running out of time. We have to do, I think, around two. You mentioned the podcast. I would love to get you here in person. This studio that I'm in right now is on Market Street, only a couple blocks from the building that we're putting in the comedy and live music venue and the Kook Burger and Bar. I would love to get with you on a on a promotion thing. We can do we can kill a lot of birds with one stone, right? We could do a round two of the podcast because I want to talk to you more about music. Um, we talked so much about some very, very important uh, issues with 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 race and and equality in this country, but I would love to do a round two and and get you get you in to perform. Maybe we can throw together a list of uh, of of folks to come open for you and 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 make it an event and start marketing it. You think you'd be ready by June? Like, if I could if I could pair it with that thing I'm doing in in Victoria in June, I think we could probably make it happen. June's easy. Yeah, yeah. Our first we're going to ha start having our first performances in March. And so June's going to be really nice because we'll have had two, three dozen uh, at least uh, performances to, to warm up. Um, but yeah, June, June would be great. And the other thing that I was thinking of as well is if if it's going to be a massively promoted thing, like it's because the venue size isn't huge. It's it gives something really unique. Like I have never been that close to you. As close as you will be able to be at this venue, like there's VIP seats where you're like, man, this is incredible. Like I'm in the show, right? That kind of feeling. And it presents something unique. So the other thing that we could do uh, in terms of bang for your buck is we can have three three shows, right? We could put a show for three days in a row or give you a break in between and do two shows, a break and another show, right? And that way we can book out all three shows, right? That kind of thing is what the smaller venues I've seen are doing more. Um, they'll have a big shot come in. They know that they can't, like there's way more tickets that they could sell for this person than they're going to be able to fit in the room, but they'll just put three dates that are close together so that you're there, Last you're hanging out. Yeah, we did that actually yeah. in Minneapolis, where instead of playing First Avenue, which we normally do, um, I did two nights at a smaller spot, 
and we could have added a third and a fourth. Like they both sold out super quick. And I think so, we'd get be- yeah, you know closer cool. to the minimums and things that way as well. But and I I appreciate the open and candid you know dis- discussion of, uh, about it. But it's you're 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 seriously you're you're a legend. You're um it's it's a dream come true to have you on the podcast and and to be able to talk about these different business opportunities with you. Thank you so much for being on the Braden Anderson show. Um, any any parting words or, or messages you, you want to leave with our with our listeners? So for to you, I would say thank you um, for for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It was really fun talking to you, and thank you for being so kind to me and so generous to me. Um, for your, uh, I would say for you and for your black listeners, if I if I overstepped or overspoke or uh, any anything like that, uh, please forgive me for that, and please feel free to correct me and let me know. Uh, for anybody white that's listening that, that may have uh, felt hurt or offended by something that I said, remember that I'm whiter than you and um, <laughs> and that, you know, what's what's really like what's being shared here is very genuine and really true. And uh, this particular evil lasts as long as as long as it's OK with white people for it to be what it is. And so um, the real onus is really like everything has been done everywhere. And even the purpose of your book and of your show is evidence of the fact that everyone else has done everything else that can be done about this thing, except for white people creating actual anti-racist culture amongst themselves. That's the thing that hasn't been done yet. And so that's the thing that that um, my words are in are in support of something like that. So I'm grateful, man. I appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Braden Anderson Show with Braden Anderson, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.